Psalm 46. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains uh, tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This ends the reading of God. The word of God, you may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's uh, let's pray this morning and ask God's blessing to us uh, of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your holy scriptures. We thank you that you don't leave us in the dark to try to figure out who you are and, and what you've made us for and how to how to rightly know you and and have salvation through faith in your son. We thank you for giving us your word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask this morning, even now, that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Work through your word and spirit. Change us because we came here this morning and heard your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's, I think it's kind of fitting that as this year, 2017, marks the 500th, if you can imagine that, the 500th anniversary of the year of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, uh, that we should take some time uh, here in our study through the, the book of Psalms uh, to look at Psalm 46. I didn't plan it that way. God's providence has kind of worked out uh, that way. And why is that? This, this psalm, Psalm 46, you may or may not know, was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Martin Luther, of course, is the kind of the one, the, the, the human character given kind of the credit, so to speak, for starting the whole thing. He didn't really start everything, but, you know, in, in 1517, October 31st, he tacked his 95 theses or points of dispute onto the church door at Wittenberg in Germany. Uh, wasn't trying to start a revolution, but it seems like he kind of did. Uh, all he wanted to do was start a debate and a discussion and uh, everything else, is nothing, really nothing has been the same since that one great act. People took those things that he really, it wasn't meant to be a public, although it was a public thing, it wasn't meant to be, uh, he had no intention of it being printed and passed out all over the place in all kinds of different languages, uh, but that's exactly in God's providence what, what happened. If you know anything of the history of Martin Luther's life, especially after that one act, uh, you'll, you'll see from looking at Psalm 46, it's no real mystery why this was his favorite. You, you think about the many threats that, that were uh, against his life through the, his, because of his ministry in the gospel, his opposition to some of the doctrines of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the ways that they had twisted the gospel, the way he stood uh, firm against that. You can see why he might lean on Psalm 46 and cling to it 
for, for comfort. Of Psalm 46, Martin Luther himself is quoted as saying this, We sing, not just say or read, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Um, Hard to, to improve upon that. Notice, though, it's easy for us to sometimes not, we kind of miss certain things or don't think much of them. He doesn't say uh, that we praise God here because God miraculously preserved and defended his church and his word. He said it in the present tense. It wasn't, he doesn't just praise God because, you know, way back when God used to do those things. In Martin Luther's own experience, he said God still, and we should say the same and confess the same, God still miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all his enemies and ours. That's why he loved Psalm 46. Psalm 46 taught him and reminded him and should remind and teach us that God still defends his church and his word against all of his enemies and and ours. You can see why this psalm must have resonated with with Martin Luther so, so powerfully that God as verse 1 says, God is our refuge, not just a refuge. God is our refuge and strength. He's our strength, a very present help in trouble. Martin Luther knew a thing or two about present trouble, and he also knew, by God's grace, a thing or two about present help in trouble. You also may already know, and you've, we've sung it a number of times over the years, that Martin Luther wrote a number of hymns, and his most well-known, his most famous hymn is based upon Psalm 46, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I Personally, I can't help but be reminded of, uh, in some way, Martin Luther, whenever I read Psalm 46, and I can't help but think of Psalm 46 whenever I sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Somehow, I think it's fitting. Uh, I'm sure Martin Luther, if you were here with us this morning, would prefer that we not think first of him, when you think of Psalm 46, we should think first and foremost of the Lord himself. But anyway, we're going to close our service with that song later on here in a little bit. But um, there, there are a number of, of theories or views or, or however you want to put it, uh, thoughts regarding the circumstances that were going on in Martin Luther's life when he wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some believe it was written about 10 years after he tacked those 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. In 1527, uh, there was a, an attack, an outbreak in Europe, and it got to Wittenberg of the bubonic plague or the Black Death, depending how you, uh, how you refer to it. Um, and so people thought, some people have thought, and not without reason, that, that he wrote this psalm, this hymn, based on Psalm 46, with that looming against the entire uh, city. And some that he knew certainly died from that, that plague. At least one commentator I read uh, held that, it, that Martin Luther actually wrote that hymn while on his way to the Diet of Worms. Um, now, Diet of Worms sounds like a very bad uh, way to eat and to lose weight. That's not what it's, uh, what it's about. Uh, I know it's funny how words change their, uh, their usages over, over time. Worms is a city. It still is in the, the nation of, of Germany. Uh, and the Diet was, it's another way of saying a trial or a, or official gathering of, of the government and of the church in, in their day. And so uh, 
at least this one commentator believed, and who knows, I don't know why, but it, 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 it makes some sense that Martin Luther on this long journey, you know, probably on a covered wagon of some kind with a horse-pulled wagon, while he was on his way, you know, thinking about what lay before him, that he wrote this hymn. Certainly, you get the idea that he was certainly, among other things, thinking about Psalm 46 and the comfort it gives while on his way to that trial. At, at that trial, he was asked to recant to turn away from, to deny his teachings about the gospel of Christ and the ways that he so openly opposed the teachings uh, regarding the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church and, and tradition, which he, he refused to do. It's there at that trial, uh, at the Diet of Worms, that Martin Luther stood almost alone, not quite alone, but almost alone, at least humanly speaking. Think about the opposition that he faced. You know, we don't even like going to court for a traffic ticket. You know, think think about what he faced going to that to that trial. Think about the the representatives and whom they represented that he was going to trial uh, before both the Pope, which I know in our day we think of the Pope as next to nothing and just a figurehead. You know, no more powerful than the, than the Queen of England. You know, kind of a, a, a toothless a toothless ogre that can't really do much without much bite. In his day, that was not the case. Uh, but both the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, I mean, you had, had it from both sides. The two biggest powers, in, in a sense, on earth were represented at this, at this trial, and they were assembled in all their might and, and supposed glory against this little monk, Martin Luther, and his teachings. They must have seen him as quite, quite a threat uh, to do that, well, before those representatives, this is what he is quoted as saying. This is translated, obviously, uh, from, I believe, German and Latin. But in the English, he's quoted as saying at his trial this. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted or convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. He is at times quoted as adding this phrase. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. They basically asked him to deny the gospel. And he said, sorry, no can do. I, I cannot go by the authority of any man, no pope or council, I'm paraphrasing. If the word of God doesn't say it, I can't believe it. And if the word of God says it, I cannot in good conscience deny it. How was Martin Luther able to make his stand, a stand like that, saying, here I stand, I can do no other, before such powerful, maybe, you know, really, maybe the most arguably, at least the most powerful people on earth, both pope and emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who sought his life. I mean, it isn't like they wanted to slap him on the wrist. You know, he had to be guaranteed safe passage even to go because they thought someone would surely kill him on the way, which has happened, had happened before to others who have been called to trial. It wasn't a hypothetical. They could think of examples of men that were called to stand trial and either didn't make it to the trial because someone killed them or after their trial they were they were taken and executed for it. How was Luther able to make such a stand against people 
powers like that. Well, he, Martin Luther knew the truths of Psalm 46 and other scriptures as well. He knew Psalm 46. He had sung Psalm 46 a number of times, multiple times. He had meditated upon it, thought about it, and he was confident that God was his refuge and strength and that God would be, even then, to him, a very present help in time of trouble. There's practical value in knowing and singing and meditating upon the scriptures and the Psalms. Daniel, you might know, Daniel 11.32 says this. It says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Well, this brief psalm, Psalm 46, I think teaches and reminds us a number of things about our God that should enable us to stand firm and take action. Think about, think about it this way. Theology is more practical than you might think. Sometimes we think of theology as just abstract you know, stuff for uh, seminary graduates. You know, it's, it's not for everybody. We don't really need it. A theology has some very practical benefits. What, what is theology other than the study of God? It's about something Rob mentioned before his prayer. It's about knowing God. That's all theology really is, is knowing God, your God, and mine better. It's about knowing the God to whom we belong and whom we serve. That's what the Apostle Paul one time referred to God as when he was on trial. He said, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship or serve did this or said, said this, Acts 27, 23. So this, this knowledge of God is not just knowing about him. It includes knowing about him, right? The, the facts of the matter are the facts of the matter, and knowing God includes knowing about him. But it's not just that. It's knowing him. The better you and I know the God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, the more you and I will learn to love him, the more you and I will learn to trust him, even in time of trouble, stand firm in his will, and even to do his will. And as the book of Daniel says there, take action. Well, the, the psalm, it says a lot about God. There's a lot of things we could look at and learn about it, but I want to focus on three things. It's always three things with me, right? Uh, and that's the, the presence of God with his people, the presence of our God with us as his people, the power of our God, and the protection of our God. So the presence of our God, the power of our God, and the protection of our God. And the very first thing, and maybe the main thing this psalm points us to and reminds us of is the presence of God with us as his people. Now when I say that, and when the psalm says it, it's not just talking about God's omnipresence. God's, what is omnipresence? It means God is fully everywhere, right? All present. You know, we think of the three omnis, omnipotent, omniscient, that God is all-knowing, he knows all things. And omnipresent means he is everywhere, and he's everywhere fully. Now that's a true, that's a truth of scripture, that God is everywhere. There's nowhere where God is not. You know, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's nowhere. There's nowhere you can go where God is not and is not fully present. But this psalm, like the rest of scripture, I would say, does, what it does is repeatedly mentions in just this brief 11 verses uh, and emphasizes the presence of God with his people. What's the very first thing he says? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Um, not just present. Very present. He's right there when you need him. That's a, a, a truth that I could, we could spend all day. I won't. Uh, but we could spend all day. I mean, think about the number of places in Scripture 
where God's presence, his, his powerful protective presence is with his people and is said or shown to be with his people. It's a survey of the whole Bible. In a lot of ways, like just, just to give a handful of things, um, think about the, the Exodus, the Exodus itself. Uh, think about uh, God's, you know, God's deliverance of his people from the chariots of Pharaoh. Think about after the Exodus, uh, what, what guided and protected the children of Israel in their wanderings. A pillar of fire during, during the night and a cloud during the day to give them shade, give them heat and light. And also when it moved, what did they do? They moved. Well, in other words, it, it's, it, it, the fire and the pillar wasn't God, but it was a symbol of his presence. It was a visible you know, reminder to them that God was moving with them. The tabernacle and the temple afterward. Well, what is that among other things? The place of sacrifice. It's a place where God dwelled with his people in the midst of them as they moved. And later on in Jerusalem, the temple was the, the place, the, the symbolic place of God's special presence among among his, his people. The book of Joshua, the very first chapter, read it again sometime. I'm sure you, you're very familiar with it. You know, God tells Joshua more than once, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. You know, don't be afraid. And what, what's his rationale? What reason does God give him for not being afraid? Did, did Joshua have reason to be afraid? Yes. God doesn't say to Joshua, hey, you know what? Uh, don't be afraid because there's nobody there. You're going to go into the promised land and they're already, I just killed them all. They're already all dead. Uh, you might have to clean up the bodies, you know, get everything out. Uh, but all the houses, the, the, the walls, the fortresses and everything, the vineyards, it's all there, but you better hurry up before the animals come in. No, God actually purposefully, the scripture says, didn't just wipe them all out at once, partly for that reason. Uh, that they had to go in one place at a time. Uh, they, but, and the enemies were very real. Why does God say, don't be afraid, be strong and courageous? Because he would be with them wherever they went. That he would give them the victory over them. He would win the victory for them. They had to go in. They had to fight. They had to go in and take it, take possession of it in faith. But God was with them wherever they set their foot. Uh, Revelation 21, the last uh, chapter, the second to last chapter in your Bible, uh, the first few verses, uh, it, the, one of the main things is God will be with us as our God and he will be with us. We will dwell, now the dwelling of God is with man. That's what makes heaven heaven, God with, with us. Well, when the psalmist says God is a very present help in trouble, another way of translating that phrase would be something like this. He is readily found, the, the idea of being found is, is prominent in the word, the Hebrew word. He is readily found to be a help in trouble. It's not just that God is there, it's that, it's that when you look for him for help, he's right there. He's not far away, he's not hard to find. The immediacy of God's presence and his help to us is what is being uh, mentioned here throughout the psalm, but especially in verse 1. It's not just that God is there, but he's really there for us. He's actually there to help us in time of need. And because of the presence of God as our refuge, strength, and help, because of that, the psalmist could say in verses 2 and 3, therefore, there's the therefore, right? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's kind of a, sounds like one of those end times movies, you know, uh, Armageddon or whatever it is. It's hard to, you know, it, it's hard to picture anything in my mind more frightening than that picture. 
It's hard to picture that in your head. The kind of thing that, certainly it wasn't something the psalmist could say he even could imagine. It wasn't, defined, it wasn't describing an event that he ever witnessed with his own, his own eyes, but you know, it, think, try to picture what the psalmist describes in verses 2 and 3. Try to picture physically the entire world kind of giving way right in front of you. You know, the, the end is, is near. The mountains being somehow, you know, we can't imagine, we get a little bit of rain and some rocks come down and we're impressed by that. You know, imagine, imagine the whole mountain, you know, Palomar Mountain suddenly being plucked up and chucked into the Pacific. The destruction that you would, that you would witness. You can't, you can't even comprehend what that might be like. Think about what would happen to the ocean if, if Palomar Mountain were yanked out of its foundation and thrown into the ocean. Think about the destruction from the water hitting the shore. There would be oceanfront property in Ramona, you know, or something at that, at that point. Think about the kind of tsunami it would take to shake here if something happened at the ocean, uh, over at the beach in Carlsbad or Oceanside. Think about how frightening that, that kind of a thing would be. And yet, what does he say? You know, this is end of world kind of stuff. And yet he says that if God is our God, and he is in Christ, and he is with us, Therefore, what? We will not fear, even if that happened. Now, we have, you know, many of you have had, and even maybe have now, scary problems. Things that you face that you don't look forward to facing, things that God has gotten you through. Um, none of those are, are at least literally, physically, as imposing as that picture. Uh, but they're very real uh, to us. And yet, what does the psalmist, the sons of Korah there, tell us? We will not fear even if that stuff happens. He doesn't say we won't fear because it couldn't possibly happen. He says, even if that happened, we will not be afraid. Why? Because God is, is with us. In verses 4 to 5, he changes the, the picture up quite a bit. He says, there is a river. He goes from these seas that are bubbling and roaring and foaming to a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. In other words, the help will come quickly. The, the trouble may be there at night, but help comes with the dawn. So he goes from a roaring sea and turns our eyes to a river that's pleasant and streams that are pleasant that make us glad. And we, what's the city of God? The city of God is us. It's not just a place. It's the people of God. The city of God, what does he call in verse 4? What does he refer to the city of God as? The holy habitation of the Most High. Another emphasis on God's presence. And because God is present with us, we shall not be moved. Why shall we not be moved? Verse 5, because God is in the midst of her. You can't move God. If Satan himself and all the kings and rulers of the earth, as Psalm 2 paints a picture of, you know, if they were all to set themselves against the Lord and against his Christ, and were to say to God, move, God gets to say, you move. Good, good luck with that. Good luck moving the immovable object, the immovable God. For, for believers in Christ, the presence of God really is the remedy or the antidote to fear. There is no fear of man when you fear God. The more you fear God, the less and less you and I need ever have reason to fear mankind. What does Paul say? You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? I wouldn't want to be on that side of the fight. 
I wouldn't want to be the one picking on the apple of God's eye. That's a bad place to be. You would not want to be in their, in their shoes. Well, the second thing the psalm reminds us of, among other things, is not just the presence of God, but uh, related to that is the power of God. The power of God. When the psalmist says the holy habitation of the Most High, when he calls God the Most High, one of the things he's emphasizing is the power of God. Not just God's presence with us, but his almighty power being present with us. It's the fact that God is almighty. It's because God is almighty that his, his presence with us has such a calming and assuring and joyful effect. If God were not almighty, his presence would only be so so uh, assuring and so uh, glad, making us glad. Now this, in some ways, it's redundant. You know, every time you read in the Psalms, any passage where it says the name God, it's redundant to say God is almighty. But the scripture, because we're dull and slow of, of, of heart to believe sometimes, has to put it in those kind of terms. When it says the Lord, as this psalm does multiple times, uh, it, it, should be, it should be redundant for us to say the Lord Almighty. God can do all things because he's, he's God. Now, twice in the psalm, in verse 7 and verse 11, it says, The Lord of hosts is with us, depending on your translation. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's, the, that's where, where Martin Luther got the term, mighty fortress is our, is our God. He says the God of Jacob doesn't say he gives us a fortress. He says he is. He is our fortress. The Lord of hosts it's kind of a difficult term for us to identify with, but it's kind of a military term. It's kind of a military uh, analogy. And the Lord of hosts is kind of the God, is, it's kind of say, a way of saying God is the God of angelic armies. He has the armies of heaven at his disposal, as if he weren't powerful enough just on his own. He has his own armies. The enemies of God's people at the time of the writing of this psalm had armies. And sometimes... Uh, it was it was easy for God's people, as it is for us today, to to to, to look at our own side of the, of, the, of the fight and say, not see much. Our our help, in a lot of ways, is not visible to the naked eye. Our help, your help and mine, in a lot of ways, is is only visible to the eye of faith. And so it's easy to lose sight of it, isn't it? It's like that that story in the Old Testament. Uh, where the prophet, uh, you know, is surrounded, and his servant goes in and, and shakes him, basically saying, "Hey, we're, have you looked outside? Things aren't looking so good." And what does he say? You know, basically, look again. He prayed, you know, God, open his eyes, let him let him see the real picture of what's going on. And what does he do? He looks out and he sees an army of angels camped around. Who, who was picking the unfair fight? Who had it worse? The prophet and his humble servant. Or those soldiers who were lined up and arrayed against the man of God and his servant. Things aren't always as they seem. And that goes for our enemies as much as it does for us. To our enemies, the church looks small enough to squish like a bug. Especially a church like us. They would look at us and go, whoa, what in the world? Uh, no, easy, easy pickings. Why even bother? Small fish, throw it back. Uh, and God, but, it, but to the eyes of faith, the almighty God of heaven and earth is, is at our side and with us in power to, defect, to def defend and protect, not defect, uh, his, his church. In verse 6, what does he say there? It says, God utters his voice and the earth melts. 
That's a more violent picture in a, in a way than that part about the, the mountains being chucked into the sea. God utters as he just speaks and the entire earth melts away. It's hard to, hard to imagine the power of God on full display in that, in that word, in that verse, in verse 6. All God has to do is speak and say the word and he could destroy not just all his enemies, but everything. He could destroy everything as if it were nothing without breaking a sweat. It brings to mind the words of Second Peter 3, verses 3 to 7. It says this, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own simple desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? And what it's really saying is, Where's the threat of his judgment? You know, I don't see it. You, you Christians keep talking about Jesus Christ coming back to judge the living and the dead. I ain't seen it yet. I'm not impressed. I'm going to keep on sinning my fill and doing what I want. And it says, Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you know, yesterday I got up, the sun came up. The day before that, I got up, the sun came up, or vice versa. Uh, things just keep going the way they've always gone. I've never seen God judge, so why should I believe God is going to judge me for my sin? But what does he say? Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he saying? God has shown judgments before. You, you, you deliberately forget. You, you don't want to think about it. God has judged before as a kind of a warning shot, a preview of coming attractions. He has judged before to show mankind he will judge again. And the biggest judgment was a worldwide judgment, wasn't it? He's saying, hey, you know, you, these, these scoffers say, oh, you know, where's this promise of his coming, of Jesus judging the living and the dead, coming back in glory to judge the world? He hasn't just judged before. He's judged the world before. This time it won't be with water, it'll be with fire. It says, uh, but by the same word, remember the same word that, that judged the world before, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We shouldn't account God's, what, what some account as slowness, right? But it's God patient, God's patience with a sinful world, not wanting any to perish, but all of his people to come to repentance and faith in Christ. Well, for the wicked and the unrepentant and the scoffer that Peter talks about, the presence and power of God that's a cause for great fear. It's the exact opposite for God's people, for believers in Jesus Christ, for you and I. I, I, uh, I trust that the presence and power of God are actually the remedy or the antidote for fear. His presence, his power for us and with us should drive out our fear. Well, the last, last thing, not the only thing, but the last thing that we'll look at even from the psalm this morning is the protection of our God, the presence, the power and the protection of our God, the all-powerful God who is with us always, is always with us for our good and to protect us. Verses 10, 8 through 10, the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. Now, 
when he says, be still and know that I am God. Um, I, I, I know I've taken it this way before, um, and it's nothing wrong with getting a truth from it and applying it to our own comfort, because that's what the whole psalm is about. But when it says, be still and know that I am God, uh, most commentators hold, and I, I, believe, I agree with them, that, that the person or the people that he's addressing there is not us. He's not saying, hey guys, don't sweat it, I got this, although that's a true thing you know, for, him, for us to, to believe from scripture elsewhere. When he says, be still and know that I'm God, he's talking to the nations. He's talking to the enemies of his people, the heathen or the, the pagan nations that, that surrounded his people. He says to them, be still and know that I'm God. You know these false gods you worship? That's what they are. They're false gods. Now you're dealing with the real thing. I, I am the one true and living God, and besides me there is no other. The, the psalmist tells us about the works of the Lord, that we are to behold the works of the Lord. What are those works that you and I are to behold or consider? He calls them desolations. Desolations that he's brought upon the earth. And in particular, the ones that, that the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 46 they involve the overthrow of the nations, the heathen nations that surrounded and vexed God's people. That's really what the main thing he has in mind here in this text. When he talks about desolations, he's not just talking about natural disasters. It might include that, but the desolations that he has in mind primarily are the ways that he has shown himself to be powerful in protecting his people in judgment. Charles Spurgeon writes about this verse. He's verse 8 he says, whenever we read history, it should be with this verse sounding in our ears. When you read history, when you read of God's doings in the past, and even in the present, right, the news, you could add that to that. We should think of verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. Whenever we read history, it should be with this verse sounding in our ears, Spurgeon writes. We should read the newspaper in the same spirit to see how the head of the church, that's Christ, to see how the head of the church rules the nations for his people's good as Joseph governed Egypt for the sake of Israel. The ruined cities of Assyria, Babylon, Petra, Bashan, Canaan are our instructors and in tables or tablets. In tables of stone record the doings of the Lord in every place where his cause and crown have been disregarded Ruin has surely followed. Sin has been a blight on the nations and left their palaces to lie in heaps. History over and over and over again tells us that those who array themselves, set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, things don't end well for them, both for individuals as well as for nations. When we read history, we should read it, as the saying often goes, as his story. We should not be ashamed, you and I, to read history with theological and scriptural lenses. We should be mindful, you and I should be, and watchful of the invisible hand of God and the rod of iron, as Psalm 2 mentions, with which Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now reigns over all things for the sake of his church. You know, we can't presume to know exactly why God is doing X, Y, and Z in, present, in the present day or even in history, but we can, we, we can and we should see it as God's providence. We shouldn't be ashamed to say that there's a very real sense in which whatever comes to pass, however big or small, that God foreordained that to come to pass and that he foreordained that to come to pass ultimately for his own glory and for the good of us as his people. 
If you and I were more mindful of this, how much needless fear might you and I avoid? How much more peacefully might you and I lay our heads on our pillows every night, even as Christ himself slept in the back of that boat on a pillow during the storm at sea in Mark chapter 4? There are a number of views as to what historical deliverance the psalmist has in mind in particular here. We don't know exactly when it was written or who the sons of Korah necessarily were, but one of the most common suggestions as to what desolations he was talking about in particular was the Lord's deliverance of his people from the armies of King Sennacherib. We just read about that recently when we're reading in our readings in the book of Isaiah. 2 Kings 19, Isaiah 37 tell in some detail of, of God's overthrow of Sennacherib and his armies. William Plummer, the old, uh, the old commentator, he writes this, If the reference is to the, is to the destruction of Sennacherib's army, the desolations were indeed frightful, though none fought against his hosts but the angel of the Lord. It's a pretty amazing account. You might recall from those readings in Isaiah we've been doing recently that uh, the Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. He came to lay siege to Jerusalem around 701 B.C. He had been kind of making his way through the entire region. And everywhere he went, he was like a, he was like a lawnmower. Everywhere he went, everything fell. No one was able to withstand him. And he finally got through Judea and came to Jerusalem itself. He sent an envoy, a messenger, uh, to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem and threatened destruction, violent destruction, unless they surrendered. He, he you know, promised, hey, it'll be okay if you surrender. You know, I'll take you somewhere else, but it'll be a good place uh, that, that you'll, you'll go. I'm a good conqueror. Uh, just do what I say and things will be okay. He mocked the Lord. There's probably the, the worst part that he did. It's one thing to terrify God's people, but then to mock the Lord on top of it. He says in Isaiah 36, 18, has any of the gods of the nations, the ones around him, delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, he's saying, you know, everywhere I've gone, I've conquered worshipers. People that trusted their God was going to deliver them. They prayed to their God. They made sacrifices to their God. Everything they could think of. And guess what happened? A whole bunch of nothing. I went in there and did what I wanted to do. And nope, they were helpless. No one has stopped me. No one's going to stop me. Don't he even kind of mocks the people to say his envoy said his messenger said, you know, don't let King Hezekiah, I'm paraphrasing, fool you into thinking that your God is going to deliver you. No one else's God delivered them. Uh, ask, ask around how it went for them and you'll see what's going to happen for you if you don't surrender. Well, Hezekiah faced a deadly foe, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at his time. And uh, he, things did not look good. He had no hope of defeating Sennacherib. None. You know, he didn't get to go to his generals and say, hey, guys, you know, deep down, we have a secret weapon and you know, we know what we're going to do. And you know, we've, we can do it. We've got enough guys. Uh, you know, something, you know, David and Goliath, whatever thing you want to you bring up. Um, what does he do? He went to God. He prayed to the Lord. He laid out the letter from Sennacherib in the, in the temple. He went to God himself as God was his refuge and strength. And he found out firsthand that God was a very present help in trouble. Isaiah 37, 33 to 38 tells us in brief the account of what happened. It says uh, in Isaiah 37, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He's telling Hezekiah, here's what's going to happen. I've heard what the king of, of Assyria said. Now listen to what I'm telling you. 
Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city. So it's a twice. Shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Why? For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. You, you picked the wrong city to pick on, Sennacherib. And the angel of the Lord, it says, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. They went to bed looking forward to a quick, easy victory and conquering of God's people and awoke to 185,000 dead bodies strewn all around their camp. What happened? God happened. God defended his people, his city. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. Good idea. And returned home. (laughs) Think about that. He's no dummy. He knew who he mocked. He woke up and saw dead bodies everywhere. And you can bet he didn't go, okay, what really happened? You know, did the Israelites sneak out in the middle? They send the, 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 the Israel's version of the Navy SEALs out and they went and struck all these people down as they slept? No. He was, it says he returned home and lived at Nineveh. And this is, listen to this. This should jump off the page. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God. He's in the act of worshiping his false god. Back home where he's safe and sound. The great king of Assyria. Adramalek and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Irshadon, his son, reigned in his place. It's not an accident. It's God's providence. It's God's, God's act, God's desolation. That it was while he was in the temple of his false god, worshiping his false god after mocking the one true and living God, that he was killed in the act of worshiping that false god. God will not be mocked, the scripture says, and that's what he found out the hard way. Well, you and I have to study both to know the perfections and the attributes of God, his power, his might, and also his works, the desolations, as the psalmist says. The better you and I know these things, the better you and I will be convinced of God's presence, of God's power, and God's protection in your life and in mine. That That's the same God, the one that killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. It's the same God that, that right now lives and is with us and, and to defend us. He's your, your mighty fortress uh, and mine as well. It's only with those truths of God firmly lodged in our hearts and minds that you and I can stand firm and take action, as Daniel 11.32 already said. Such knowledge of God is a thing that will calm your fears and mine. And it's knowledge of such things as that that will enable you and I and encourage us to faithfully carry out the Great Commission as well. You know, I don't know about you, when I read the Great Commission... Uh, I don't go, yeah, I can do that. We, sure, we can do that. Easy peasy. Give me something hard. You know, I think, maybe, I think you picked the wrong people. You know, maybe you could do this on your own, God. I think you picked the wrong, you picked a pretty weak ragtag bunch of folks if you want us to be a part of, of doing that. Well, the same thing applies here. The, the, the lessons of Psalm 46 apply to the Great Commission as well. Listen to the Great Commission and listen for the same themes we read up in Psalm 46. 
Jesus came and said to them, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, what? The last words of the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, or lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just like, the, just like the conquest of Canaan. I'm going with you. It'll be fine. Just do what I tell you to do. I, I will give you the victory. I will, give you, I, will, I will make it happen that disciples will be made. Why? Because all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The entire universe, I'm ruling it. It's all mine. I have power and authority over all of it. Now do this, and as you do this, make disciples, baptizing and teaching all the commands of Christ. Who's with us? The one with all power and authority. Disciples will be made. It doesn't seem like they should if we're just looking at ourselves, but disciples will be made. The risen and ascended Christ is now reigning over all things. He has power and authority over all things, and he's with us always, even to the end of the age. It's in the firm knowledge of that, of those things that you and I are able to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey the commands of Christ our King. The Lord Jesus Christ is with us powerfully to help and defend us, and so you and I need not fear no matter what comes into our lives. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, uh, you for your condescension, your kindness, your mercy to us, that you know that we are a fearful bunch. You know that we, we can barely see past the nose on our faces and uh, we, every time a threat or a problem comes up, we are quick to throw our hands in the air. We are quick to fear. We are tempted by fear in all kinds of ways. We fear the future. We fear lack. We fear pain. We fear war. We fear disease. We fear drought. We fear just about everything. We fear your enemies. We fear the evil one uh, who is uh, so powerfully in our eyes arrayed, aligned against us as your people. We fear suffering that you have called us to in following Christ and taking up our cross and following him. And yet passages like this and, and really all of your scripture in some way testify to us over and over and over and over again as if we would miss the point because we do, that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, and that you are with us even now to gather your church and defend it, that the gates of hell itself, as powerful as they may seem to us, uh, they, they, they can never ever hope to prevail against us and we give you praise that you are the one with power and mercy enough that all the nations themselves will be made disciples of that you you have sent your gospel out and are even now doing that and people are coming to Christ people we would never expect to come to Christ are, are made alive by your mercy from the dead and given faith in Christ and life in his name that you are, are building your church even now we ask that you would give us grace to be uh, to do whatever part you would have us to do in the, in the building of your church and making disciples. Help us to trust, even as Joshua and the generation of conquest of Canaan did, uh, even if imperfectly, that they trusted that you would give them the victory, that you would grant them possession of those cities in the promised land. Uh, give us grace in, in like fashion to have faith in you as the God who is all-powerful and all-powerful for us and with us as our refuge and strength and as a very present help in time of trouble. Help us to trust you and do your will and glorify the name of Christ through us as your people. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.